We've been on a journey through the book of Mark for the past 11 weeks, I think, as a church. We've been working through the book of Mark. Uh, but today we're going to take a break from the book of Mark. Um, and the reason is, is I felt it um, very clearly impressed upon me that God had something else he wanted to say this morning. Um, I believe that God gave me a specific word this morning for our church. And so um, we're going to be doing something a little bit different in the book of Mark. Uh, me and Kyle have been going through an apartment complex uh, kind of on the west side of Oshawa uh, for the last couple times and there's probably about I don't know 200 apartments in this particular apartment complex and uh, we've been going and just knocking on people's doors and asking them hey is there any way that we can pray for you uh, and seeing if there's uh, you know any way we can minister to people and and we'll share the gospel with them if they are willing to listen. And, um, and in this particular complex, we've knocked on about 45 doors. Uh, and there's been little to no reaction to the gospel. Uh, virtually uh, zero uh, reaction. It's been met with a lot of apathy. And you know, I've, probably, uh, I've probably talked to and encountered over a thousand people you know, in Oshawa over the past couple of years, over the past year and a half since we've been here, just going, whether we're knocking on doors or walking to, up to somebody at the park or in the parking lot and things like that. And uh, the general consensus is that uh, many times when we go out, uh, we go out timid and afraid, and we go out meeting lots of apathy and indifference to the gospel. And it causes me to ask at times, are we missing something? Because as I read the Bible, I can't help but think we are at times. I read the exploits of Peter and Paul and Philip and James in the book of Acts and other unnamed disciples through which God powerfully moved. I read in Acts chapter 17 about how the people, the, the city officials of Thessalonica were complaining because they said these men have turned the world upside down and now they've come here to our city also. I read in Acts chapter 4 how the church was filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness, even after being threatened with prison and death. I hear stories like my friend Augie, who was just in Mexico, and he travels around and he preaches the gospel in Latin America, and just several weeks ago he saw 83 people come to faith in Jesus in one week. Or my friend Jefte, who lives in Haiti, and over the past two years, they've seen 3,000 churches planted in a period of two years in the country of Haiti. And so I can't help but ask, are we missing something? You know, the book of Acts is not history. The book of Acts is Jesus continued. Jesus rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven. We're going to read about that in just a second. And he tells his disciples, okay, now it's your turn to continue what I started. We're living in the book of Acts. It's not just history. But if we're honest, there's little movement here where we are at. There's indifference and resistance to the gospel in the hearts of people in our city. There's fear and timidity in our own hearts, mine included. There's a lack of urgency amongst God's people. We're not acting like we live in the end times, but we do live in the end times. I want to preface this message with something because as I thought about this, I didn't want to come across as if I'm unthankful for what God has already done. This isn't simply a rebuke 
though for some of you it might be. And it's not to discount what God has already done. It's not to discount the story of Ashley, who we saw get baptized last week because two men from our church were faithful to go and knock on her door and share the gospel with her. Or to discount stories like Sarah and Grace and how Sarah was faithful to go and share with Grace, with her family, and Grace decided to follow Jesus. God is moving amongst us, and I'm not discounting that. I'm super thankful for that. I really am. But there are 7 million more people in the GTA alone. 7 million. And according to the North American Mission Board, 98% of those are unaffiliated with an evangelical church. Like Jimmy Scroggins, who's the pastor of Family Church in South Florida, has said, I don't want to just hear about the book of Acts. I want to see it. I want to see it. This is a desperate call this morning from a desperate pastor, desperate church planter to his church in desperate times. We need revival. And God specifically gave me this word for our church and for our city. And specifically, it's found in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 1 to 5. If you have a Bible, you can uh, open it. If you don't, there are Bibles on the tables in front of you. Feel free to grab that. And if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Uh, you can take that Bible home with you. Isaiah is pretty much right in the middle of the Bible. It's before Jeremiah, and it's after Psalms and Proverbs. And the text is also going to be on the screen behind me in just a moment. But let me give a little bit of background to this passage so that you might be able to better understand what God is saying here. Uh, the chapter before is chapter 43, and God is speaking through his prophet, through his servant, Isaiah. And God says to the people of Israel, to his people in chapter 43, he says, You have burdened me with your sins. He tells them, You did not call out to me. You've been ignoring me. You haven't been crying out in desperation to me. Even when you got yourself into trouble because of your own bad decisions, yet still you did not cry out to me and you have wearied me with your sins. And now the people of God are in exile and things seem dry. God seems distant. His people feel defeated. The enemy is winning. There's nothing they can do. They're in exile in Babylon. And their enemies have total control over their life, and they feel like there's nothing that they can do about it. Does it sound familiar to anybody? And here's what God speaks into the midst of that situation. Isaiah 44, 1-5. Here's what he says to his people. And this is a word for us, his church, this morning. He says, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up like grass, like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of of Israel. So you see in that passage when God is speaking to his people, he says, I, in the midst of this dry and weary situation, God seems distant. It seems like the enemy is winning, like God is not moving. And God says, I'm going to pour my spirit out upon you and upon your offspring and your descendants. Who is Israel's offspring and descendants? Us, the church. 
We are the children of Abraham if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, I'm going to pour my spirit like water on dry land, like streams in the desert. And that is an incredible promise. In the midst of a season in which we feel spiritually dry, when we look at the world around us and we feel helpless to stop it careening towards hell, God promises to act. And what is the result? The result is found in verses 4 and 5. He says, they shall spring up among the grass. What, what, is, what shall spring up among the grass? That means more people of God. This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of the Lord. And another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. What is he saying? He's saying that the people of God are going to multiply. In the midst of a dry and weary season, when it seems as if the enemy is winning and God's people are losing, God is going to speak pour his spirit out on his people, and there's going to be revival. His people are going to multiply. Martin Lloyd-Jones defines a revival like this. He says, a revival is a miracle, something that can only be explained as the direct intervention of God. Men can produce evangelistic campaigns, but they cannot and never have produced a revival. J.I. Packer who's an author and a theologian, says this. He says, revival is the visitation of God which brings to life Christians who have been sleeping and restores a deep sense of God's near presence and holiness. From this springs a vivid sense of sin and a profound exercise of heart in repentance, praise, and love with an evangelistic outflow. A revival is the presence of God come down on earth as God's spirit comes upon God's people. So my aim today is simple. We're going to answer three questions. Who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? What happens when God pours out his spirit on his people? And what conditions need to be met for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit? My aim this morning for each and every one of you, my desire and my prayer leading up to this morning is I want you to want revival more than you've ever wanted anything in your entire life. That's what I want to excite in your heart. That's what I want God to excite in your heart. Who is the Holy Spirit? The, Wayne Grudem says this. Whoops. Mike, this happened to you the other day, didn't it? Hold on one second. We've got technical difficulties. Huh? Probably should have gotten this situated before I started, shouldn't I? As I was saying, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? Wayne Grudem says this. He says, the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world and especially in the church. So the Holy Spirit is one of three persons of the Trinity. There's the Father, there's the Son, that's Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to listen to Acts chapter 1, verses 4 to 8, and maybe this will help us understand this concept a little bit more, okay? So Jesus has risen from the dead. He appears to his disciples, and here's what he says. It says, and while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he said to them, It is not for you to know times of seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what's happening here is Jesus is sending his followers to continue what he was doing. Well, what was Jesus doing? Well, he was revealing God to the world, and he was reconciling people back to God. He was reconciling people back to himself. Here's a helpful, helpful way to think about this. There's three stages in history of God revealing himself to people. The first stage was in the Old Testament where the presence of God was manifested in the glory of God. For example, in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, God's presence dwelt, okay? Or on Mount Sinai when the presence of God came down when the people of Israel met. Or in the pillar of cloud and fire that guided the people of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. An example of this is 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 to 11. The people of God bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, and here's what happens says, and when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. My, how that is my prayer that that would happen here. So in the Old Testament, the presence of God was manifested in the glory of God. In the New Testament, how do you think the, the presence of God was manifested? Who was that? Jesus, that's right. Jesus manifested the presence of God. In fact, Jesus said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus manifested God to the entire world. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, walked the earth. And Jesus died and he ascended into heaven and now the presence of God is manifested by the Holy Spirit through God's people. And this is what happened at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. This is what was promised in Acts chapter 1. This is what Jesus promises is going to happen. This is why he tells his disciples, wait, wait, and the promise of the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The presence and the nearness of God will be in you, and then you go out to the world, and God will move and speak and act through you to reveal himself to the world. And the promise of the Holy Spirit is for every single Christian. We receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, at the moment we are converted, at the moment we are born again. The Bible says that Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then the one who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, or in other words, will also raise you from the dead. So we have to have the Holy Spirit in us if we want eternal life because Romans 8.11 tells us that the way that we are raised from the dead is by the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead who dwells in us. So if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. Now here, I want you, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is a key phrase. This kind of summarizes what I just taught. We receive the Spirit so that God can continue what the Father planned and what Jesus began through his church. We receive the Spirit so that God can continue what the Father planned and what the Son began through us, His church. However, having said all of this, being filled with the Spirit is far different. 
Every Christian has the Holy Spirit inside of them, but not every Christian has experience being filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be aware of God's presence, to want what God wants, to do what God wants in God's power. Here's the best way I can describe this. When we receive the Holy Spirit at conversion, God's Spirit is in us and with us always. But when we are filled with the Spirit, we become acutely aware of God's presence and the Holy Spirit makes himself known sometimes in unmistakable ways such as signs, wonders, prophecies, things of that nature. I'll give you an illustration to try to help explain this even more. A child knows that his father loves him if he has a good father. He knows that his father loves him all the time. But when that child's father comes up behind him and scoops him up in his arms and grabs him and pulls him close to his chest and kisses him and hugs him and whispers in his ear, I love you and I'm proud of you. In that moment, the child knows the father's love in a deeper way than the child ordinarily knows the father's love. Does that make sense? The child always knows that my daddy loves me, but in that moment when he is scooped up into his daddy's arms and hugged, he knows that his daddy loves me. That's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. Let me give you a few reasons that being filled with the Spirit does not equal receiving the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, at conversion. Because this may or may not be a new concept to you, but let me give you a few reasons from the Word of God that being filled with the Spirit is different than receiving the Spirit. Number one, the Bible tells us that it is possible to quench or grieve the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, Do not grieve the Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. That means don't suppress or snuff out the work of the Holy Spirit. Now again, let me be clear, this does not mean that you lose your salvation, but it does mean that you lose power. You can lose assurance of your salvation. You can enter into times where you're not sure of God's presence and God's nearness in your life. It's possible to quench or grieve the Spirit. Secondly, Jesus tells us to ask the Father for more of the Holy Spirit. In Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus clearly tells us to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, commands us to be filled with the Spirit. Now, Paul would not tell Christians to be filled with the Spirit if the only thing that was meant by being filled with the Spirit is that you receive the Spirit at conversion. Because if they're already Christians, then that means they already have the Spirit, so why would Paul command them to be filled with the Spirit? And what drives this point home even further is that in the Greek, that phrase, be filled with the Spirit, it's an active tense, which means what it's actually saying is be continually being filled with the Spirit. So this is not just referring to a one-time event. This is something Paul is telling us that we should seek for and strive after continually throughout our Christian walk. Lastly, the filling of the Spirit is never a subconscious experience in the Bible. Go and read through the book of Acts. Read through the epistles. 
And you'll find that the filling of the Spirit is never a subconscious experience, meaning it never happens when the disciples are just unaware that it happened. And a lot of times, I've heard things, I've, heard, I've had people tell me in my life before, you just need to believe in your heart that you're filled with the Spirit. Like even, even when you don't feel like it, just, just believe that you're filled with the Spirit. And I think that's helpful in terms of believing that we are saved, we have the Holy Spirit in us, but I believe that God wants more for us than just to believe in our heart that we're filled with the Spirit. Because I think the Bible makes it pretty clear every time we see the filling of the Spirit in the New Testament, there was no doubt that they were filled with the Spirit. There wasn't a question of, hey, what's going on here? They knew very well exactly what was happening. There was power. The Holy Spirit is always experienced in power. They didn't just believe the baptism of the Holy Spirit had happened. They actually experienced it. So, some of you might be sitting there going, oh no. I don't feel like I've ever had that happen in my life. What, what does that mean for me? Is there something wrong with me? Am I not a Christian? I don't want you to fret because... It doesn't mean that you don't have the Holy Spirit. Again, it does not mean that you don't have the Holy Spirit, but it does mean that you need to obey Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. Well, how do I do that? Well, that's why we're having this sermon this morning. We're going to get there. So, question number one, who is the Holy Spirit and what does he do? We've answered that. Let's move on to question number two. What happens when God pours out his Spirit on his people? Well, the first thing we see in Scripture is that we, re we receive power over sin. Are you struggling with sin or with specific habits, addictions, things that you just can't break? Romans chapter 8 verse 13 tells us, By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. In Ephesus in Acts chapter 19, we read that... Uh, the uh, Apostle Paul and his team came into Ephesus and they began to preach the gospel and revival broke out in Exodus. It says that fear fell upon them all and the name of Jesus was extolled. And later we read that people were confessing and divulging their practices. They were being convicted of sin and they were coming and they were, it says they actually were taking their, their magic arts books and they were throwing them in a bonfire and burning them. They were cutting ties with their former life and with the things that they used to depend upon. There was a clean break from sin, and that came from the Holy Spirit that fell on these people. So when the Spirit of God is poured out on His people, there is an acute awareness of the blackness of our sin and a deep desire to be near to God and flee sin. Secondly, when God pours the Spirit out on His people, we receive power for God's mission, for evangelism. Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and he said, We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. For our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Jesus told the apostles to wait for power. So if they needed to wait for power, surely we do too, don't we? I mean, what makes us think that we can go out and effectively evangelize when the apostles couldn't even do it without waiting for power? Evangelism without the, the filling of the Holy Spirit 
results in evangelism with fear and timidity in the hearts of the disciples. John Piper, pastor at Bethlehem, or former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church, says this. He says, a Christian without power is in need of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. A Christian without power is in need of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you feel like you don't have power when you go out to share the gospel? Do you feel timid? Do you feel afraid? Then you're in need of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Evangelism with the filling of the Holy Spirit results in what we see in 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, where the gospel comes to people not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. When God pours his spirit out on his people, he also gives spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says, To each is given a manifestation of the spirit for the common good. I want you to notice that word, manifestation. That doesn't sound like a word, doesn't sound like a gift that's given to us where we are unaware that it's even in us, does it? Manifestation, what does manifest mean? Somebody tell me what manifest means or manifestation. Shown, revealed, clearly seen, right. Paul says to each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If you are a born-again Christian, God has given you gifts. And he wants you to use them. When God pours the Spirit on his people, he also leads us. Do you ever get frustrated because you don't know what to do or where to go? or what God is calling you to. Maybe you're facing a decision where there's two good options, and neither option is necessarily bad. You just don't know which one to take. I come to those situations all the time. And when I come to those situations, I'm reminded of Paul, who in Acts chapter 16, he was attempting, he says he was attempting to go into Myasia, a new reason, region, and it says the Holy Spirit prevented him from going to Myasia. And he continued to pray, and then in the night he had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come here and help us. And Paul concluded that God had called him to Macedonia. The Holy Spirit wants to give you clarity in your life just like he gave to Paul. Or how about in Acts chapter 13 where the disciples are at the church in Antioch and they're all gathered together. And it says, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work for which I have called them. Friends, we need the wisdom and direction of the Holy Spirit to guide us. We can't just operate off instinct. We can't just go off of, well, we're pretty sure this is what God has called us to do. We need to go off of what we know God has called us to do. And God will lead us in that way when we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Lastly, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we receive joy and the assurance of salvation. Joy and the assurance of salvation. I see that all over the book of Acts. Go and look. Go and take a cursory read through the book of Acts and see how often you see the concept of joy connected with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to fill your life with joy. For example, Acts 13.52 says the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Or Acts chapter 4, the disciples were filled with all boldness and the joy of the Holy Spirit. And that was after they were threatened with death and imprisonment if they shared the gospel again. That's not normal, church. It's not normal to be filled with joy when we're threatened with death and imprisonment. 
But the filling of the Holy Spirit brings a real awareness of God's presence and nearness. It brings assurance to our hearts. That's what happens when God pours the Spirit out on his people. So we come to the big question. How, does, how do we see this happen in our lives, in our church? What conditions must be present to be filled with the Spirit? Before I give the answer to this question, let me be clear. We cannot manipulate the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, Paul says, all these, and he's, when by these he's referring to Christians, all Christians are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions gifts to each one individually as he wills. Not as we will, as he wills. So anybody who tells you that they're going to teach you how to prophesy or heal, stay away from that garbage. Stay away. The only thing that we can do about being filled with the Spirit is to ask God. It's, a, it's then up to God if and when he will do it. But we do see from Scripture that there are some conditions that must be in place if God is going to do so in our lives. To give you an illustration, it's kind of like falling asleep. Have you ever thought about this? You can't actually make yourself fall asleep. All you can do is arrange circumstances so that it makes you much more likely to fall asleep. So you could turn the lights off and you can turn the fan on and like I had to do last night because my neighbor had the TV up really loud, uh, the basement neighbor. You can turn the AC on cool, which I really like, I like that. You can snuggle up in the covers. You can make sure you eat well and don't drink coffee or energy drinks afternoon. All of these things will make it much more likely that you're going to fall asleep, but at the end of the day, you're not really in control of whether or not the brain waves switch off in your brain and you fall asleep. Have you ever noticed how some nights you just can't? You just can't fall. Who was I talking to? Somebody I was talking to earlier this morning told me I just couldn't sleep. Yeah, it was Kyle. I just couldn't sleep last night, right? And some nights we just have nights like that. It's a little bit like that with the filling of the Holy Spirit. We have no control. We cannot manipulate the Spirit of God and make Him come down and make Him fall on us, but we can control the conditions. So what are the conditions? Well, number one is we need to be living on mission. We need to live on mission. In other words, we need to do things that we actually need the Holy Spirit for. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Who knows the Great Commission? Who can recite it for me? Go out loud, whoever. Use your outdoor voice. Awesome. Exactly. Jesus says, I have all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples, baptize them, teach them, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus has all authority. He promises that he will be with us. For what? Why will he be with us always? For mission. The Great Commission, that's why he will be with us always. The Holy Spirit is given to empower us to continue what Jesus started. So if you aren't doing that, what do you need the Holy Spirit for? Like really, think about that. 
what do you need the Holy Spirit for? I see some people run around. You'll see people run around on TV and flop on the ground and act like they're getting slain in the Spirit and things like that. And these people are not actually out in the community sharing the gospel with people. In fact, a lot of these TV preachers are actually just taking money from people. But they're not on mission. They don't need the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is given to empower us to continue what Jesus started, to share the love of God with the entire world. The Comforter doesn't comfort comfortable people. The Comforter is another name for the Holy Spirit. He doesn't comfort comfortable people. You know, I'm convinced that most Christians are bored. They're just bored with the whole thing. Many of you have never stepped out in faith and experienced the power and presence of God in your life. So, of course, sin seems enticing. Of course, it's hard for you to let go of that relationship in your life or that habit. It's because Jesus doesn't look better to you. You don't actually want Jesus more than you want those things. Because if you did, you would throw those things away and say, You can have the world, just give me Jesus. But here's the deal. It's not him, it's you. There's nothing wrong with Jesus. Jesus isn't less glorious or less beautiful. It's not that he can't satisfy you and won't satisfy you and fill your life. It's that you've never gone on an adventure with him. Listen, guys. By disobeying the Great Commission, you are grieving the Spirit of God. We talked about don't grieve the Holy Spirit. We grieve the Spirit of God when we disobey the Great Commission. You're living in sin because you are failing to love your neighbor. You'd rather watch them go to hell than risk being rejected or skip a night of Netflix. It's the truth. You're never going to grow until you go. You won't grow until you go. Do you want to experience God's power and presence in your life in a real way? Then go make disciples. Put yourself in positions where you need God and he will show up. Here's my challenge for you, for our entire church. From here on out, what I'm, going to be in challenge, what I'm going to be challenging all of our people to do is to spend one hour every week in the harvest. I want to challenge you to intentionally go out, whether you decide you want to go door to door and just knock on people's door and go, hey, can I pray for you? Whether it's going to the park, whether it's going to a club or joining a mom's group or a whatever, a softball team, whatever, one hour a week being intentional about going into the harvest and sharing the gospel. And it's okay. Don't go alone. You shouldn't go alone. Take somebody with you. Jesus sent his disciples out in pairs. And here's the thing. If you don't know how, we've got all the tools. Many of you already have the tools. You've been shown the tools. We can help you learn to start gospel conversations. We can help you learn how to share the gospel, all of those things. All the tools are readily available for you. If you want to experience the blessing and joy of being filled with the Spirit, go and make disciples. So that's the first condition. We must live on mission. Secondly, and this is going to sound really almost too simple, we must ask God for the Holy Spirit. We must ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to refer back to Luke chapter 11. Read this in a little more context. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says this. He says, What father among you If his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? 
Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It almost seems too simple, doesn't it? But we have not because we ask not. This is an open invitation from Jesus. He wants to give us more of his Spirit. In fact, it's his pleasure to give us the Holy Spirit in full measure. He's delighted to answer this prayer and to do so. But are we willing to go to the prayer closet and take him up on his offer? Our greatest need today is for men and women who, like Jacob, are willing to grab hold of God and refuse to let go until he blesses them. You know that story, Jacob, in the book of Genesis? God comes as an angel in the night. A man comes, and and he doesn't know it at the time, but it's the angel of the Lord, and he comes into Jacob's camp, and he begins to wrestle with Jacob because Jacob had been wrestling with God's call on his life. He'd been wrestling with what God was calling him to do, and he wrestles, and he refuses to let go of this angel. And the angel, he touches Jacob's hip, and his hip actually gets dislocated, and he says, let go of me. And Jacob says, no, not until you bless me. We need men and women of God who are willing to grab hold of him like that and refuse to let go until God blesses them. Jonathan Edwards, who was a part of the Great Awakening in the uh, 1700s, he became so desperate for God's power that one night at home he threw himself on his bed and he cried out, I thirst. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He would later reflect on that in his journal and say he was never the same after that. Dwight Moody used to pray a prayer over and over again. He would pray, oh God, prepare my heart and baptize me with the Holy Spirit power. And one night, God did. Every revival, every great move of the Spirit of God has begun in prayer. Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 came on the heels of 10 days of prayer with the disciples meeting together in the upper room. They cried out to God for 10 days, and 10 days later, the Spirit of God fell on them. In 1858, in Ireland, there was a man named James McQuilkin. He and three others began gathering at a schoolhouse for weekly prayer meeting for revival. Every week they would gather and they would pray for several hours. By the end of the year, the prayer meeting had grown to 50 people by the end of 1858. And by the end of 1859, revival had fell upon Ireland and the surrounding areas, and 100,000 had come to Christ. 100,000. And it started with James Wilkwilkin and three women in a schoolhouse. I love this passage, Isaiah 62, verse 6 and 7. Listen to what God says to us. I'm going to read it actually in the New Living Translation. It says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. They will pray night and day continually. Take no rest, all you who pray to the Lord. Give the Lord no rest until he completes his work, until he makes Jerusalem the pride of the earth. God is basically saying, try me. Wear me out with prayer. I challenge you 
to continue to come before me night and day and see if I weary of hearing your voice cry out to me for prayer. He's inviting us to it. He's inviting us to it. And what's the result? That Jerusalem will be made the pride of the earth. That's the church. Until this is Jesus' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, guys. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for God's kingdom to come on earth. We're praying for revival, for people to experience and encounter the presence of God. This is an open invitation from God for us to pray for that and a promise that he will answer. No one can deny that we're up against the odds in our city. At least if you've been in the harvest and you've experienced it, you can't. There's very few serious followers of Jesus. There's little openness to the gospel. The situation in our city has brought me to my knees. I sat in my car this week as I prepared and I wept and I cried because I feel helpless to change our city. I feel powerless to do anything about it. And I desperately need God. You might see, and some outsiders might look and see a church plant that looks successful, that's growing. And yes, like I said earlier, there's good things that are happening, but I see a city teeming with people headed for hell. And I serve a God whom I know has the power to transform it. So what are we going to do? We're going to ask him. We're going to pray. Starting next Sunday night, we're going to begin to meet every single Sunday at 8 p.m., and we're going to pray. We're going to start meeting at my house. There's no set ending for the meeting, but just like James McQuilkin and these three ladies began to meet at a schoolhouse every week on a Friday night, we're going to meet at our house every night on Sunday. I don't know for how long we're going to do it until God tells us to stop or until the Spirit of God falls on this city and we begin to see people come to Jesus. But I believe that he wants us to do it. This is an open invitation. Even if you're not a part of this church, you're welcome to come. But I would challenge you, if this is your church, be there. That's my simple challenge. That's the application to this point. Be there. Meet with us as much as you can. I understand you have normal life if you have to work and things like that, but make every effort to be there on Sunday nights. We're not going to start tonight. We're going to start next Sunday night, okay? 8 o'clock at our house, and I think it said Monday, but I changed it, so. All right. Live on mission, ask for the filling of the Holy Spirit, and lastly, the third condition is total surrender. You must totally surrender yourself to God. The Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit for a reason. He's not going to fill somebody that doesn't care about holiness, or that approaches holiness casually. Look and listen to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 and 21. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Cleanse yourself, therefore. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. 
Now let me be clear, this passage is not teaching salvation by works. It's also not teaching that you have to be perfect to be useful for God. But what it is teaching is that if you want to experience God's power and presence, you must surrender everything to God. You must cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable. Let me ask you, what in your life is grieving God's spirit? What in your life does not honor God? It might not necessarily be something bad, but it might not be the best. I mean, Netflix is not evil in and of itself, but if you watch it 20 hours a week, I can promise you that's not something that's pleasing to the Holy Spirit. And that's likely the reason that you're struggling to feel sure that you were saved and to feel a sense of God's presence. I meet so many people, and that's one of the things that they tell me all the time. I don't feel like God is with me. I don't really feel like I'm sure that I'm saved, or I feel like God is distant. And many times it's because you've got things in your life that are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. It doesn't mean necessarily that God doesn't love you, and it doesn't mean that you're not a Christian, but of course you feel distant from God because you've grieved His Spirit, because you're allowing things into your life that don't please Him. We've got to consecrate ourselves. That word consecrate means set yourself apart. Like in the book of Exodus, when Moses... God told Moses, hey, I want you to tell the people, call them to consecrate themselves because my presence is going to come down on Mount Sinai. And so Moses tells them to consecrate themselves, and they go and they confess their sin, and they offer sacrifices. They did that in the Old Testament. We don't have to do that today because Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. But they cleansed themselves from what was dishonorable, and they prepared to meet God. If you want to meet God, to encounter him, to experience his power in your life, you must do the same. One who has completely emptied himself is ready to be filled by God. So how do you do this? How do you actually do this? Well, first you need to remember God's grace. I gave myself, I gave my all to my wife, Jen, because I wanted to, not because I had to, not because I thought, well, I better, or nobody else better is going to come along, or, you know, I'm just glad I convinced somebody to marry me. That wasn't why I married Jim. I gave myself to her. I said, till death do us part, because I loved her, because I wanted to give myself to her. I promised to love her and no other, because there was no other woman that I wanted to love. The gospel The gospel is that though you have sinned and you have offended and rebelled against the holy God who is in heaven. And if you're thinking, I don't know if I've done it, you've done that. God is holy and all of us have fallen short. And even though you did that, in your filth, in your sin, in the midst of your rebellion, God looked at you in the muck and in the mire. And God looked at you in love swelled up in God's heart and he sent his only son Jesus and Jesus left heaven and he came to earth and Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live he loved others the way that we were always meant to but we failed to do he loved God the father he always did the father's will he said in the book of John I only do what I see the father doing he was innocent and yet the innocent son of God was sent for one reason 
so that the very people that he came to save could take him, lead him up onto the hill at Calvary, nail his hands and his feet into a cross so that he could shed his blood in your place. When Jesus died on the cross, the blood that was shed, 1 Peter 1 says, is the precious blood of Christ that purchased you out of slavery to sin and death. That's how much our sin cost, but it was not too great of a cost for God to pay. You were worth it to him because he made you in his image and he loves you. That's why we consecrate ourselves to God. When we think of the gospel like that, when we think of the love of God that has been demonstrated for us on the cross, my question for you is why would you not give your everything to him? We don't give our everything to him so that we can earn his love. You can't earn it. He already poured it out for you. It dripped from his hands and from his feet and from his brow with the crown of thorns. He's already demonstrated it. We love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 says. That's why Romans 12.1 says, In view of God's mercy, in light of what God has done for you, offer your body as a living sacrifice. That's why we offer our bodies. We remember God's grace, and then we walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, it was natural for you to sin. You probably didn't think much of it. It just came naturally. But now the Spirit is at work in you, drawing you to God, changing your desires. To walk by the Spirit means to immediately obey His promptings. So when you hear God whisper to you, don't watch this show. Don't do that. Don't keep hanging around those people. Or maybe it's, come away with me and pray. Shut off the TV and come and spend time with me in my word. When you hear his voice, obey. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. It means to follow his promptings. Because here's what happens, guys. When we ignore over and over again the promptings of his Spirit, what happens is that his voice becomes more faint. His presence gets distant. You begin to doubt his love for you. You begin to doubt your salvation. You begin to pull away from Christian community, from fellowshipping with other believers. You begin to pull away from spending alone time with God. And before you know it, it feels like you're drowning in the ocean again. Walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When we listen, we experience the blessing of his, of his presence. I love Paul's depiction of what it looks like to live a life devoted to God, a, a life that is a living sacrifice. This is actually my life verse. I stumbled across this verse a couple of months after I got saved when I was at a men's home for guys that struggle with drugs and alcohol. It's a Christian's men's home, and here's what it says. Acts 20, 24, he said, My life is worth nothing to me unless I finish use it to finish the work that God assigned to me, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. What is, what is it in your life that you would say, 
if I can't do this, then my life is worth nothing to me. What is that thing? And then ask yourself, does that thing actually have any eternal value? Is it going to matter after you're dead? Give yourself to what will matter in eternity. A man or a woman who says that, what Paul said, and means it, will experience the power and presence of God in their life. This world, our city, is desperate for a few men and women who will give their lives away to live on mission, to plead with God until he sends revival, and to surrender everything to God. I want to share a story with you. In 1935, there was a man named Blasio Kugosi. He was a school teacher in Rwanda, it's in Central Africa. He was deeply discouraged by the lack of life in the church and the powerlessness of his own experience. And so he followed the example of the first Christians and he closed himself in for a week of prayer and fasting in his little college, cottage. He emerged a changed man. He confessed his sins to those he had wronged, including his wife and his children. He proclaimed the gospel in the school where he taught, and revival broke out there, resulting in students and teachers being saved. And they were called Abaka, which means people on fire. Shortly after that, Blasio was invited to Uganda to share with the Anglican church there. And as he called the leaders of the church to repentance, the fire of the Spirit descended again on the place with similar results as in Rwanda. Several days later, Blasio died of fever. His ministry lasted only a few weeks. But the revival fires that were sparked through his ministry swept through East Africa and continue to have lasting results today. Hundreds of thousands of lives have been transformed over the decades through this mighty East African revival because of one man's faithfulness and his refusal to settle for the status quo. He was willing to get on his face in the prayer closet, to live on mission, and to consecrate himself to God, to surrender everything. And because of that, everything changed. Do you want your life to count for eternity? Then give it away like Kugosi did. And I just wonder, I thought as I was preparing this, I wondered, are there any men and women in here like that? Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. I know that most won't respond to the call, but I believe that there are some in this room. So my question for you is, is it you? Is God calling you? What is the Holy Spirit asking you to do today? Maybe you've never actually responded to the gospel before. Maybe you're not even sure if you have the Holy Spirit at all. And you feel God calling you today. You can respond right now in this moment. You can, in this moment, decide, I want to give myself to Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. And if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says that you will be saved. Or maybe you know that you're born again and you're a Christian. 
and you've been following Jesus, but you know God's calling you out to more. He's calling you out into deeper waters. And you know he's calling you to consecrate yourself, to offer your body as a living sacrifice this morning. Don't wait. Respond now. Remember, respond immediately to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And I just want you to spend some time in prayer at your seat this morning, responding to whatever it is that God might be calling you to do. And with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, I'm also just going to ask if there's anybody in this room this morning who feels that God is calling them, but you have never actually placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you want to do that today, would you just look up at me and raise your hand or just make eye contact with me, raise your hand up, anything like that? Okay, if you've done that, then right now in your seat, I can help you pray. You can pray after me. And um, this isn't a magic prayer, but this is just, if you mean this in your heart, then um, God sees your heart. You can say, dear Jesus, I know that I have sinned and I have messed up, but I believe that you died on the cross for me to take away my sin and that you rose from the dead. Please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. And help me to follow you from here on out. Amen. For any of, anybody else in here who might feel that God's calling you to go deeper, to take that step of faith, to respond and consecrate yourself, spend a couple of moments now praying. And I thank you so much for this morning and I thank you for what you are doing in this church and for what you're doing in this room this morning. And I thank you for those that have made decisions today, for those that have heard the clear call of you, of your voice. And God, I pray that this would not be an experience that happens from emotion, something that we get caught up in the moment. But oh God, may this be lasting. May you start a fire in this room today. Oh God, set our church on fire and Holy Spirit, I pray that your wind would blow and that it would spread across the Durham region, across the GTA, and across Canada so that the name of Jesus would be extolled and exalted and lifted high. That is our prayer and that is our desire. May we become less and less, Jesus, and may you become more and more and greater. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.